0: All right, good morning. Hey, wasn't that great? Uh, so thankful for Job and the team leading us in worship today. Wasn't it sweet? Such, such awesome worship. Amen. Uh, so thankful for uh, Job coming and, and leading us. And, um, you know, he was recommended from a friend of a friend. So kind of worked out in a beautiful way. I want to encourage you to pull out your Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 50 today. And we're going to be talking about uh, a message that really is uh, really foundational for our lives. And at times we all wonder, is God in control? Is God sovereign? Does God know what's going on in my life? Can he, can he work um, good out of the bad? Can he bring um, triumph out, out of tragedy? Can he bring blessing out of pain? And so this morning, I just want to encourage you from God's word this morning, from, from the life of Joseph in Genesis 50, that God is in control, he sees all, and he's, in, he's behind the scenes working all things out for your good and for his glory. Genesis chapter 50, before I read the passage, let me give you a, a quick recap of uh, Joseph's life. If you look at the patriarchal family in the book of Genesis, there was a a generational sin of favoritism in the family. It was, it was really, uh, it was deeply rooted in this family. Abraham loved Sarah more than Hagar. Isaac loved Esau. Jacob loved, I mean, Rebecca loved Jacob. They played favorites. Jacob married sisters. We know that he married Rachel and Leah, the, the original sister wives. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Rachel gave birth to Joseph, and Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons. Joseph was the favorite son. He was daddy's favorite. The Bible says Israel, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He was the golden boy in his golden years. The patriarchal family was plagued with the sin of favoritism. There was a generational effect, a domino effect. Sin was passed to the next generation. Here's a parenting tip. As you're parenting and raising kids, more is caught than is taught. More is seen with the eye than heard with the ear. Kids see and they pick up. They're watching you. They're learning from you favoritism was modeled before Jacob so it's no wonder he grew up favoring a wife and a son the book of genesis tells us that jacob gave joseph a robe of many colors he doted on this boy in his golden years he lavished him with gifts and the brothers hated joseph because he got all dad's attention we know the story joseph was a snitch he sent bad reports about his brothers to his father and You know that never goes very well right if you're snitching on your older brothers older brothers don't uh, take too kindly to that kind of stuff right and at the age of 17 he has these wild fascinating dreams and the the, the brothers and the parents would someday bow down to him and because of that we know how the story uh, um, begins to unfold the brothers throw him into a pit They sold Joseph into slavery. I guess they didn't appreciate his dreams or the snitching. Um, Joseph is sold for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. He's then taken to Egypt. Uh, There in Egypt, Potiphar, Pharaoh's military general, he bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites. The Lord was with Joseph, the Bible says, and he became a successful man. He found favor in Potiphar's eyes and he made him overseer of his entire estate. We know one famous story in his life. Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph attempting to rape her. And because of this, this lie, he is then thrown into prison. So imagine Joseph goes from the pit to the prison. Could it get any worse? It goes from bad to good to bad. He interprets two prisoners' dreams, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker both are officers of pharaoh it's pharaoh's birthday we remember the story the baker is hanged the cupbearer is restored to his position in the last verse of chapter 40 it says yet the chief cupbearer did not remember joseph but forgot him verse 4 of the next chapter chapter 41 it says two years go by So between chapter 40, the end of chapter 40 and the beginning of chapter 41, he's in prison. There's a white space in your Bible between those two chapters. And the white space is God working in the life of Joseph. God is privately doing a work in Joseph's life. He's building character. He's forging a man of God. He's refining his character. He's preparing Joseph for a public ministry. The chief cupbearer, based on what the Bible tells us, forgot about Joseph. But even though man forgot about Joseph, God did not. God did not forget about Joseph. Joseph then goes on and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams because God was with Joseph and he rises to power. So he goes from the pit to the prison, then to the penthouse. He's second in command over the nation of Egypt, a very prosperous, influential nation, and he assumes this position at age 30. We know the story. The brothers make two different visits down to Egypt because of the famine. There's a massive famine. Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers in chapter 45. Now, fast forward to the end of the story. Jacob and Joseph are finally reunited. And Jacob says to his father, no, Jacob says to his son, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. The Bible says that Jacob breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. I love that that imagery of death. Death ultimately is you being gathered to your people. You being gathered to God, it's a beautiful uh, picture of, of the relationship that we have with Christ. We will be with Christ for eternity. We will be with other brothers and sisters in Christ for eternity. Joseph falls on his father's face and he, and he weeps over him and he kisses him. So here's the, the, the setting of the story. Jacob is dead, Joseph is grieving, and the Egyptians weep over Jacob for 70 days. Pharaoh then gives Joseph approval to bury his father in the land of Canaan. And and there's a huge procession, a huge entourage, and all the servants, elders of Pharaoh's household, all the elders of the land, Joseph and his brothers, chariots and horsemen, they make their way to bury their father. Now this brings us to Genesis chapter 50. So quick flyover overview of his life, Genesis 50. Verses 14 to 21, look at God's word with me. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, this is key. He says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So after burying their father in Canaan, they arrive back in the land of Egypt, and the brothers are terrified. I mean, it's been uh, quite a few decades. They're afraid, they're terrified that their little brother Joseph, who's second in command, is gonna seek revenge now that their father is dead and so they they send a message to joseph literally saying you know dad tells you play nice right we were supposed to get along you know be nice to us right forgive us and actually it says please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you so joseph reads this note and what does the bible tell us it says that he wept the reaction shows that his heart had been changed by god 's grace, and I want us to look at his reaction I, I think Genesis chapter fifty you know when he makes this statement about um, God meant it for good, you meant it for evil, I think that is a game changing verse for our lives. There is some rich theological truth and there's some deep practical truth there for us as we face tribulations and trials and pain and suffering and and, and, and when circumstances don't go our way, we just need to understand God is in control. Genesis chapter 50 verse 19, I want you to see the first statement. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I, for am I in the place of God? Here's point one. Reconciliation is possible when you give God his rightful seat. When you give God his rightful seat, Joseph is saying, I am not God. I'm not the judge, and I'm not going to put myself in God's seat. The implication is, if you hold on to anger, you are sitting in God's chair. How many times do we sit in God's chair? How many times do we just assume God's rightful position? No, I'm going to be the judge today. Right? I'm gonna dish it out. I'm gonna dole it out. No, you heard me? Okay, I'm gonna settle the score. I'm gonna seek revenge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna right the wrongs here. I'm gonna figure this out. And so the truth is, if you hold on to anger, if you cultivate that, if you, if you react to that, you are sitting in God's chair. You are assuming his position. Only God has the right to judge people, only God can right the wrongs when you've been hurt or wounded deeply. It reminds me of what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, 17 and 19. Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, you should circle that word, if that phrase, if possible, right? Sometimes reconciliation is not possible because it takes two people to reconcile the situation. But if possible, so far as depends on them, no, so far as it depends on you, right? Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You look at the landscape of Joseph's life, you see everything that's happened to him. And it's like Joseph in the book of Genesis knew Romans chapter 12. It's like Joseph was living it out. He's a beautiful picture, a portrait of of the beautiful truths tucked away in this chapter. God says, repay no one evil for evil. Joseph had the power to repay the evil that was done to him. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. God's saying, you be God's woman. You be God's man. You step in. You reconcile. You make things work. You You work things out with people as far as it depends on you. Joseph saw reconciliation as something that he had to do. Paul says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And how easy is it for us, you know, to assume that chair? I'm I'm sitting in the chair today and and I'm going to seek revenge. I'm gonna right the wrongs, and, and I'm gonna hold people accountable. Only God can judge. Only God can sit in that rightful chair without becoming evil himself, because he is pure, and he's holy, and he's righteous, and he's blameless, and he's perfect. He's a class of his own. He cannot be tempted by evil. You know, there was an elderly woman who was um, bit by a rabid dog, and she went to go see the doctor, and the doctor said, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but you have rabies. Immediately, she started writing, I mean, feverishly. And the doctor said, are are you making out your will? She said, no, I'm making a list of all the people I'm going to (laughs) bite. You know, some people say, revenge, how sweet it is. Revenge is so sweet. You know, revenge is not sweet. Revenge is bitter. It leaves you bitter. It leaves you resentful. And it can even cause you to be angry with God. Bitterness is a heart condition. I learned more about bitterness this week, and I I thought, wow, there's been times in my life where I've been bitter. We've all been bitter. Bitter is the heart condition where you are unhappy with the plans that God has established in your life. You're bitter. You're you're bitter towards God. You're you're angry. You're you're frustrated. You're upset about God's plans in your life. And so it, 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 it doesn't work in your life. When you seek revenge, you choose not to be like Jesus. When did Jesus ever seek revenge? I mean, Jesus went to Nazareth. He was invited to speak in the synagogue. What happened? He was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by the The religious class of the day, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't know what to do with them. They both disagreed with each other, but they both had had one common denominator, one thing that they were completely in agreement on. They did not like this traveling itinerant rabbi, this this person named Jesus, and who claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus never sought revenge. He he never... um, He never sought to settle the score. Jesus was the most forgiving person who ever lived. You think about his life, he was marginalized, he was rejected, he was betrayed, he he suffered unjustly, but yet he was still able to extend forgiveness while Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. The Roman soldiers, they nailed him to the cross, and the Bibles tell us that the religious leaders were mocking him, and the crowds were reviling him, and what did Jesus say? He said, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want you to write this down here 's a fill in the blank. You are never more like Jesus than when you forgive you 're never more like Christ than when you forgive that 's what it means to be like christ that 's why Paul told the uh, the believers at the church at ephesus right that that God in Christ has forgiven you, so you take this forgiveness that you've received and you extend it out horizontally towards people around you forgive as god and christ has forgiven you the example is god forgiving you then you take that forgiveness you take that grace and you pour it out in the lives of other people here's here's another fill in the blank forgiveness is a decision to release a person from an obligation that resulted when they injured you that's what forgiveness is really the heart of the word forgiveness in the Bible, is to untie. There's there's a knot that's all tangled up and you gotta untie it and you gotta like release it. It's like releasing a boat from the harbor. You gotta untie it, right, from the shore and, and release it. Forgiveness is a decision. Forgiveness is a choice. You have to choose, I'm gonna forgive that person. And sometimes it's really hard to make that decision, but but you got to make that choice. And the choice is to release someone from an obligation or a debt load, a perceived debt that they owe you. So here's the deal. When someone hurts you, now in your thinking and our thinking, human finite people, we think, oh, you hurt me, now you owe me. You hurt me, now you owe me. So you have to work that debt off. But that's not what God did for us. He didn't say work off the debt load. He said, I'm gonna send my Jesus, my son, to pay the debt for you. He was pursuing us with his love, with his grace. He was pouring out his grace upon us. You know, one of the things I always say is, one of of my lines is, you will never cross the forgiveness finish line. And what I mean by that is, there's never going to come a point in your life where you break through the tape and you're like, I did it, I ran the race, it's done. When you break through the tape is when you're dead. And you take your last breath. That's when you break through the tape. You're going to keep running these, these laps, the laps of life. And you're gonna keep extending forgiveness, why? Because you will need to be forgiven in the future. You forgive because you're gonna need forgiveness. You will, you will need to extend forgiveness to others in the future. People are gonna hurt you and you're gonna to need to forgive them. You know, I learned years ago in life, hurting people hurt. When people lash out at you, when people hurt you, guess what, it's not personal. And oftentimes it's not even you, it's them they have some issues in their own life that they're not dealing with and so they're lashing out they're hurting you because they're hurting inside and that's just good for us to remember so when someone hurts you maybe extend that extra grace maybe do something radical and be like christ and and extend grace and initiate conversation and and work through some things with them they would be completely blown away because the world the way the world reacts You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you, right? You do me wrong, I'm going to do you wrong worse, right? That's the world. But the gospel is so much different. You hurt me, I'm going to forgive you. You know, the disciples asked Jesus many times. On one occasion, they asked um, Jesus about forgiveness. And the rabbinic tradition was you forgive people up to seven times. And Jesus told the disciples 70 times seven, 490 times. And Jesus was making the point to the disciples, when it comes to forgiveness and extending that to one another, don't keep score. Joseph was able to forgive because it was a work of God's grace within his life. A few months after Florence Chadwick failed on her attempt to swim the 20 mile straight off the coast of California, California she made a second attempt. And the second attempt, like the first, was in the midst of a thick fog. This time, however, she was successful. When asked why she made it the second time with a similar thick fog, she reportedly replied. This is what she said. This time, the shore was in my heart. Forgiveness was in Joseph's heart. That's why he was able to forgive Because he was filled with God's grace and his forgiveness and his love. I love what Paul David Tripp says. You and I don't just need to be forgiven. We need to be radically changed as well. God's grace has the power to do both. You know, Joseph was able to extend forgiveness because he was a changed man. It was God's grace within his life. He was marked by God's forgiveness. Joseph could have refused to forgive his brothers. He could have absolutely refused. He could have chosen to be angry to be bitter over, um, over what his brothers did, he, he could have chosen, you know what, I'm not gonna release the hurt. And um, he could have chose to hold on to that and nurse that. Here's a good way to deal with anger. Realize that people haven't done to you what you've done to God. See other people's sins against you in light of your sins against God, right? When you see people's sins against you in light of, of your sins against God, it gives you the right perspective, right? It's, it becomes tiny, insignificant. Um, and so it's about receiving God's forgiveness, vertically extending it out horizontally towards people. If you choose not to forgive, here's the results that's gonna take place you're gonna be cold. You're gonna be cold. You're gonna be indifferent. You're gonna nurse that wound. You're gonna have self pity. You're gonna be self absorbed. You're gonna be self centered. And in life, We're going to get hurt. You cannot live without being hurt. People are going to say things about you that are untrue. They're going to do things to you that are mean. And so you have two choices. You can release the hurt and the pain. You can release it. You can give it to God. Right? It's a work of the Spirit in your life. Or you can hold on to it. You can hold on to it, but then it wrecks your life. It causes bitterness and resentment. You know, there was a husband and a wife who were they were always in conflict, you know, and the wife was always arguing and nitpicking her husband, and the husband died, and she put on his d- tombstone, rest in peace until we meet again. <laughs> How'd you like to be married to a woman like that, man? I mean, a woman that wants to settle the score when you're both dead, you know? I mean, this is what a lot of people do. They're, they're attempting to settle the score, right? We can never learn forgiveness if we're never hurt by others. So sometimes we just need to give that to God. We need to be praying, God, give me a heart of forgiveness. But you know, when you pray for certain things, God's going to give you the grace to to meet that need in your life. It's like you saying, God, give me patience. And all of a sudden, there's a downpour of trials in your life. You ever prayed for that? God, give me, I want to be more of a patient person, and then God just pours trials into your life. Or God, I want to have a generous heart, and then all of a sudden, you see all the needs around you, right? Or God, give me a heart of forgiveness, and then people will fail you. Your heart's going to be crushed. Your spirit's going to be wounded. People are going to treat you unjustly. See, we admire Joseph. I mean, I admire Joseph so much, I I look at his life and I'm like, man, if I just had one little ounce of his character, that would be amazing. How could this guy go from being sold, rejected by his own family, flesh and blood by his brothers, and then move from the pit to the prison, he's forgotten, and then God remembers, and then he moves from the prison to the penthouse, and then he's reunited with his brothers, and he chooses to forgive them and not kill them. How How does that happen? We admire that. We want to be like Joseph. We want the product, but we don't want the process. I mean, I want the end product. I want to be forgiving like Joseph, but I don't want to go through what Joseph went through. I don't want the process. Anybody want the process? Anybody? No one wants that, right? We want the destination, but not the journey. We want the heart of forgiveness that this work of God's grace in our life, but we don't want the hurtful wounds of a friend or the rejection of those who are close to us. We want deeper intimacy with God, but we don't want to pay the price. We want to be like Jesus without becoming like Jesus. Here's the second statement Joseph makes in verse 20. This is, this is one of the game-changing verses, I think, in all the Bible. Verse 20, he says, as for you, I don't know how he said it, If it was soft and tender, or if it was direct, I don't know. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me. You, my brothers, my flesh and blood, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here's point number two. Reconciliation is possible when you see life from God's perspective. Now, you have to understand. So he becomes... Second in command, age of 30, young guy, has authority, influence, power, right? God's hand is on his life. God is favoring the life of Joseph. Now he's in his mid-50s. His family has been in Egypt for 17 years. Joseph's brothers are face down on the ground. They're begging for mercy. They're begging for forgiveness. They're asking Joseph to save their lives. And this wasn't the first time that they asked Joseph to forgive them let's rewind the story a bit let's let's go back to Genesis 45 it's the first time that Joseph reveals the true identity to his brothers look at Genesis 45 4 to 8 here's the first encounter chapter 50 is the second encounter so Joseph said to his brothers come near to me please and they came near and he said I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. It's like he reveals who he is and then he's trying to calm them down. I think he realizes they're thinking, oh, like he's alive. He's not dead, right? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And notice just the emphasis on God, 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 God. God God-centered, God-saturated. This is rich theology. God is working. God is supplying. God is preserving. God is doing something amazing. And Joseph is, is highlighting all that God is doing. He's highlighting his character. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's powerful, man. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now at this point, the first, his first reveal, okay, because we went from Genesis 50 to Genesis 45. So we're rewinding the clock a little bit. Genesis 45, he's 39 years old. 22 years have gone by since he was sold into slavery. And notice what he says. God sent me before you to preserve life. He goes on. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And his, his brothers didn't send him to Egypt. So you see a lot of people, think, oh, the brothers did. No, God did. God used the spectacular sin of the brothers to send Joseph to Egypt to save the very ones who were trying to kill him. He goes on, he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Now here's what I want you to think about. God used the brother's sin to preserve alive not only his covenant people of Israel, but also the line from which the Lion of Judah would come to save and rule the peoples. God was preserving his people, the nation of Israel, the line through which the Messiah would come. Genesis 50, verse 20, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So when you look at the story in this spectacular sin, there's one act of pure evil. His own brothers threw him into a pit, sold him as a slave. He was begging for his life. Can you imagine doing that to a little brother? I mean, throwing a little brother into a pit. He's begging for his life, and you don't care. One act of pure evil. But in the midst of this one act, there's two designs. Joseph's brothers were designing evil, but God was designing good. Joseph's life was spinning out of control. Bad things were happening to him, but it was God who was doing the spinning. God used the bad and brought about the good. God allowed tragedy to happen to bring about triumph. He turned defeat into victory. He turned the pit into the penthouse. He used man's plans to bring about his perfect will. And this is is some application for us. As believers, we are not exempt from suffering. We're not exempt from sickness or cancer or car accidents, the pain of divorce, abuse, bankruptcy. Bad things happen to good, godly people. Let me say that again. Bad things happen to good, godly people. If you look at the life of Joseph, Look at the life of Job. Look at the life of Jesus. Everything is filtered through the Father's hands. Nothing happened in their lives that God did not allow. Nothing happens to you without God filtering it through his hands. You know, we got a Berkey in our home. We've had it for a few years. I mean, it produces like the best water in the world. I just I love the taste of it. Actually, my brother, uh, his family, when they were Malayali, they're actually stateside because they're uh, dealing with some health issues and trying to get some help with some things. But um when they were living in Malayali, they they had a Berkey system. And so it it really purified the water. And so when I think about the purification, I I think of the, the water filters. And the water, the water filters all the bad, right? And allows the good to to be able to seep through. God allows things in our life. He he can use the spectacular sins of others against you and he can design it for your good now we by faith we walk by faith not by sight so we we can't see the end result we don't know the future we don't know how this is connected to this and that's connected to this but we just know that god is behind the curtain of your life and he's orchestrating he's doing ten thousand things in your life to bring about your good his glory and ultimately it's about his glory So when when you face suffering and terrible, horrible, no good things, right? just understand, you know what? God is in control. Sometimes Christians say, well, man, I love Jesus. I don't understand why God is allowing this in my life. There's no free pass on trials. There's no free pass on trials. Bad things happen to good godly people. God is still at work. God is working. And sometimes believers get angry with God. Let me say this, if you're angry with God about something in your life, that reveals, that reveals several things. But it reveals one thing about your heart. You believe that God is big enough to fix it. You believe that God is big enough to fix it. You know, God wants us to be real and raw before him. The, the book of Psalms is, is, is perfectly, uh, it's a perfect picture of a of, of raw human emotion and being honest with God. But at the end of the day, we just need to realize, you know what, God has a perspective that I do not have. You know, I've used this analogy over the years so many times, it's like, uh, and I love the analogy, so I keep using it. It's like um, if if you watch a football game, right? So like the Super Bowl just recently, really wanted the Eagles to win, but the Chiefs won, whatever, right? Bunch of cheaters, bunch of cheaters. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting how like the NFL, they just make up their own rules in the middle of the game. I don't even understand it, but whatever. Okay. So... I'm not even even an Eagles fan. I'm a Niners fan. I got, the Niners got beat by the Eagles, right? I should want the Eagles to lose. I'm watching the Super Bowl. I'm thinking, wow, this is pretty wild. Okay, okay, so back, what was they saying? Okay, yes, so when you watch a football game, right? So, and I've used this analogy before. Some of you could probably tell it to me because it's so good. It really displays how God is. There are coaches way up in the box and then there's coaches on the field. The coaches on the field have one perspective they they they're they're seeing the game from one vantage point but the coaches in the box they have the best view because it's the top down aerial view it's a beautiful metaphor of how god works in our lives god is the creator god he's in a high up box and he's looking down on your life you're like a coach you're like you're kind of on the field and you, you know or you're in the game, right? And you, you, you don't have the big picture. But God looks down. He sees it all. He sees the game of life. He sees what's going on in your life. And so Joseph, Joseph he had a, a top-down perspective. He understood that God was working and God was in control. Look at what he says in verse 21. Verse 21, he says, Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I just want you to stop and think about that for a moment. He comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. Could you do the same? Could you do the same? Could you comfort those who threw you into a, into a pit, who sold you into slavery, to abandon a, 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 a caravan, who then took you to Egypt? Here's point number three: Reconciliation is possible when you not only forgive. But express unconditional love. You know, with Joseph, it his life was so marked by God's presence and God's power and God's love, it didn't stop with forgiveness. Joseph could have said, I I choose to forgive you, and that's it. I don't want a relationship with you. I, I don't want I want to live my life. You do your thing. No. He he went to the next level. He went to the next level. And he moves beyond forgiveness and he does something that I think is completely radical he does something that I wouldn't do I know I wouldn't do this I know I wouldn't do this he demonstrates radical generosity look at what he says to his brothers he says do not fear I will take care of you I will provide for you and your families all your little ones you know, most people think that the, the source of radical, pers- uh, radical generosity is, is the purse or the wallet or currency. But really, I think the source of radical generosity is the heart. Joseph is generous and he's loving and he's gracious towards his brothers who are so undeserving. They don't deserve it. And this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is the gospel. This is a portrait of the gospel. Yeah, That's the point, they don't deserve it. Joseph points us to Jesus, he is a type of Christ. How how is he a type of Christ? Jesus was sent by the Father, rejected by his brothers, betrayed by those closest to him, sold out for some silver, endured humiliation. I mean, does this sound like the life of Joseph? I mean, and, and some differences here, Jesus died on a cross for our sins, He rose again victoriously on the third day. God took the spectacular sins committed against Jesus and he turned them for good. Our sins were paid for. The wrath of God was satisfied. And Jesus rose again and he defeated sin and he defeated hell and the power of the grave. Joseph represents Jesus. His brothers represent us. You and I, we we don't deserve the grace of God. The love of God, his forgiveness, but he's a God of perfect grace. I love what Max Lucato says. Max Lucato says, he says, you see, God is either the God of perfect grace or he is not God. I think that's so true. God forgets, period. He who is perfect love cannot hold grudges. If he does, then he isn't perfect love. And if he isn't perfect love, you might as well put this booklet down and go fishing because both of us are chasing fairy tales, but I believe in his loving forgetfulness, and I believe, and I love this last line, I believe he has a gracious, terrible memory. Lucado says, he who is perfect love cannot hold grudges. Joseph is a type of Christ. He could have held a grudge, he could have made his brothers pay big time, but he didn't, he chose love and he chose grace. I love Lucado's last line, And I believe he has a gracious, terrible memory. You know, God tells us in his word that he has thrown our sins into the depths of the ocean. He's thrown our sins as far as the east meets the west. And and by the way, they tell us that there are billions and billions of stars, they tell us that there are trillions of galaxies. The Milky Way galaxy is just one of trillions of galaxies. They say that the universe is expanding at the speed of light, 186,000 miles. I I, I don't even understand that. I I can't even fathom that. I can't even wrap my mind around that, that the universe is expanding. When I think about that, when I think about God taking your sin and my sin and, and he casts it into the ocean and he throws it into the heavens... I think that's a god of perfect love that's a god of perfect grace i love what what lucado says he has a gracious terrible memory god in his grace he chooses he chooses that's the key word because he's all-knowing he's omniscient he chooses to remember our sins no more have you experienced this god of perfect grace Listen, this God of perfect grace can do a sweet work in your life. Maybe right today you're like, you know what? I'm I'm battling some unforgiveness towards some people, and I'm wounded, I'm hurt, I'm nursing some things in my life. I would tell you release the obligation, release the debt load, release it, untie the knot, untie the hurt and let it go, give it to God. And understand that God has forgiven you so much more. He's forgiven you a greater debt in Christ and because of that forgiveness, we can extend forgiveness to one another. Maybe today, you can honestly say, I, I've never experienced this grace. I, I don't know about God's mercy and God's love towards me and I'll tell you this, God in Christ loves you so much that he died on the cross for your sins. And that you can place your trust in him. If you place your faith and your trust in Christ, who is the only Savior at heaven, there's salvation in no one else, right? No other name. Jesus alone can save. Only Christ can transform your life and change you and do a real transforming work in your life. But you got to come to Christ broken, understanding that you need a Savior. You need forgiveness. And the only way that you can be right with God is if you come to his son Jesus. And Christ will forgive you and he'll change your life when you place your faith in him. When you turn from your sins, you jettison your sin, you turn your back on your old way of living and you fix your eyes on Christ and you ask Christ to be your savior, he becomes the savior of your life and your heart. Let's pray.